Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent to modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Creighton McElvey. And today we are honored to have on returning guest of the show um, and one of our one of our most widely demanded guests, uh, Bishop Chandler Holder-Jones, presiding bishop of the Anglican province of America. Bishop, how are you? Excellent. As always, a joy to be with you. Such a great privilege. Thank you for having me on this wonderful program. I'm honored to be here today. Well, it's so good to uh, to see you. It's been a while. I, I know you, you keep rather busy. Yes, uh, things have gotten far more intense in the last year and a half as I describe my work as that of a traveling salesman going about the diocese, making Episcopal visitations. We have a geographically expansive diocese from Pennsylvania to Florida, from the Atlantic Ocean into Tennessee and Alabama. It keeps me very busy, but it's been a great blessing and a great uh, gift from the Lord, really, to be able to serve the church in this way. But it means I travel most weekends of the year. So if you want to find me, it's hard to hit a moving target. and I'll be moving to some different location every weekend, but it's been a wonderful blessing. Excellent. Excellent. Well, in fact, I need to talk to you about getting you up here to the great state of Maryland. So love it. make you come north again. Make you come north again. Well, great. Well, um, what we wanted to talk about with you today is what some people call the Anglican formularies. That's not language we would use, but this has come up recently um, for a number of, of, of issues. Um, you Every now and again uh, on Twitter or, or some Anglican social media, the, the concept of the Seventh Ecumenical Council and iconoclasm comes up. And of course, the Anglican formularies uh, come down on a certain side on that issue that I think we don't really come down on as continuing Anglicans. So I think we we wanted to kind of talk about what that means. What does how, how do continuing Anglicans relate to the so-called Anglican formularies? Um, and so to kind of start us out, you had mentioned you had an essay that you had written on this topic that you were wanting to read. So would you uh, do us the honor of, of reading that? I would be delighted. Thank you. And I'll make a few introductory remarks, which is that the continuing Anglo-Catholic churches, the St. Louis Affirmation churches, approach this question quite differently from other manifestations of Anglicanism. Uh, there is a phrase I like to use called the Bader-Jones thesis in honor of fa Father Canon Robert Bader, uh, and I have worked with him for many years, and we understand together that there's no such thing as Anglicanism, but there are in fact at least three Anglicanisms. There is what we might call progressive or modernist Anglicanism based in Canterbury, Evangelical Protestant Anglicanism, which is located in GAFCON and in this country, the Anglican Church in North America, and then Catholic Anglicanism, which is mostly represented by the continuing churches. We would, of course, submit, posit that Catholic Anglicanism is the historically continuous one that maintains the tradition, the ethos, the liturgy, prayer, the theological science and practice of the historic Anglican communion. Uh, that is the basis upon which we live and pray and serve the Lord as continuing Anglicans. And as St. Louis Affirmation continuing Catholic Anglicans, we believe in a hierarchy of authority regarding what are called formularies. First of all, you have, of course, Holy Scripture, which is inspired by God. It is the Word of God written, contains all things necessary to salvation. And that which is of saving salvific doctrine must be demonstrated and proved by the scripture. Underneath Holy Scripture, we have the seven ecumenical councils, which the Catholic Church has always maintained 
possess an indefectibility of doctrine. The dogmas, the decrees of the seventh, the seven councils, including the seventh, but all seven ecumenical councils of the undivided church of the first millennium possess the character of doctrinal infallibility. And we affirm that in the St. Louis Affirmation churches. Then beneath that, we would have the Book of Common Prayer because Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, the law of prayer is the law of belief. So the Book of Common Prayer then becomes the lens through which we would interpret the lesser formularies. And in this hierarchy at the bottom of the list, if you will, would be those local particular formularies that are distinctive to the Anglican tradition and don't represent the wider mind of the Catholic Church East and West. Amongst these would be, of course, the 39 articles, which have to be read according to the interpretative lens of the Book of Common Prayer, the consensus of the Church Fathers, the seven ecumenical councils, and of course, ultimately, Holy Scripture itself, which is the principal source of divine revelation. Now, given this hierarchy of written information, if you will, the documentation of revelation, Back in 2004, I wrote an essay about the 39 articles, and this created a little bit of a stir at the time, particularly from the more evangelical wing of, uh, shall we say, the traditional Anglican movement. And I'd like to share this with you right now, just to give an outline of what the 39 articles historically are within the matrix of the Anglican tradition. The 39 Articles of Religion are the charter document of the Elizabethan settlement and of the English Reformation. Adopted by the General Convention of the Protestant Episcopal Church on 12th September 1801, the Articles have a fascinating history. After some debate beginning at the First General Convention in 1792, the Articles were eventually attached to the 1789 Book of Common Prayer and were constitutionally embraced by the American church as being representative of her mind. Years before, in 1553, the Church of England initially created, by the hand of Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, 42 articles, which were given under the seal of King Edward VI. The Convocation of Canterbury began work on a revision of the 42 articles in 1563. In 1571, under Queen Elizabeth I, the English Parliament issued the newly revised 39 Articles. The Articles, as a formal statement of the principle of the English Church's reform, received royal assent from the Queen on the 29th of May, 1571, and ever since they have been law in the English Church and realm. The Articles enshrine the classical Anglican theological position called the Via Media, or the middle way. This golden mean of an Anglican doctrinal standard, it must be said, is certainly not a halfway house to Rome or Geneva. Rather, what was conceived was that the via media of the articles expresses in generous language a resourcement, a recovery of the teaching and doctrine of the early church fathers of Christian antiquity. The articles therefore articulate a vision of the Anglican theological paradigm. The Anglican Church claims to be and is a true church of the apostles and fathers. The Anglican Church also claims to be continuous with the pre-Reformation Church of the Ages as a Catholic Church, which is primitive and patristic. 
And these claims make the articles of religion important. They define, in many ways, the historic Anglican approach to certain matters of doctrine. For example, the articles affirm the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. We read about that in Article 27. And the doctrine of the real objective presence of the body and blood of Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist, while repudiating the medieval errors of what was then understood to be transubstantiation, a misinterpretation, in fact, of St. Thomas Aquinas, but one that was popularly held, and also views of Eucharistic sacrifice independent of the one sacrifice of our Lord. We read about that in Article 28 and again in Article 31. Again, the articles clearly affirm that there are seven sacraments, which are channels of divine grace but two of them are generally necessary to salvation. We read about that in Article 25. They affirm the apostolic ministry of bishops, priests, and deacons while abolishing compulsory clerical celibacy. We read about that in Articles 32 and again in 36. Justification by faith is in an ambiguous way approved in Article 11, while double predestination is corrected in Article 17. Nothing can be found in the Articles which was not held by the Church of the early centuries if it is properly interpreted. And that is precisely the Articles' claim to fame. Anglicanism has, as Archbishop Geoffrey Fisher of Canterbury once proclaimed, no faith of its own, only the Catholic faith of the Catholic creeds, without addition or diminution. The articles present to us a Catholicism restored. Nothing is necessary to salvation, but that which is contained in and proved by Holy Scripture, and yet nothing is to be rejected which belongs to the legitimate tradition of the early and undivided church. The 39 articles of religion are hence not, not a confession, nor are they a confessional statement. The Anglican Church has, in fact, never been a confessional church, but with the rest of the apostolic church has always been a creedal church. The Anglican branch of the Catholic Church, in union with the Eastern Orthodox and Latin churches, adheres to the three great creeds of undivided Christendom, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. The Anglican Articles of Religion are unique. They were produced by the authority of the English Parliament in order to bring about some semblance of uniformity in a national church, housing many different theological schools of thought or opinion, theological thought and opinion schools. The articles are thus articles of peace, bringing both uniformity and diversity to a comprehensive church. They are boundaries within which Anglicans historically engage in theological exploration and thought, and are meant only to exclude the extremes of Puritan Protestantism on one hand, and what may be called by some papalism on the other. The articles seek to restore and emphasize ancient Christian orthodoxy, the apostolic tradition as contained in Holy Scripture and lived out in the early church. Although clergy of the Church of England were once required to make a general assent to the Articles, as required by the Canons of 1604, here in America, our Church has never called them a confession. The American Church has never required subscription to the 39 Articles, 
And we must always remember that the articles are not and never were intended to be an exhaustive compendium of Anglicanism's doctrine. They are neither a theological encyclopedia nor a complete statement of what Anglicans believe. Because they are historical in nature, they only address questions of doctrine which are very specific, questions which were disputed at the time of the Reformation. The articles are an historical document of weight and importance and still play a role for Anglicans. But the articles have always been and must always be interpreted through the lens of the entire Book of Common Prayer. The Common Prayer Book as a whole is still the more authoritative source, aside from Holy Writ itself, for determining what Anglicans believe. Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi. The law of prayer is, indeed, the law of belief. Though not binding in the same way as the creeds or the seven ecumenical councils or the liturgy are, the articles can still help us. They can still guide Anglicans in the theological enterprise. The articles remind us of our past and help us as we go into the future, and they are certainly a prominent feature of the Anglican patrimony. And it should be said regarding the 39 articles that almost every phrase contained in them comes originally from St. Augustine or from St. Thomas Aquinas. And what is critical is that they be interpreted aright. And this is why when we think about the 39 articles, we can say that Tract 90, which was written by John Henry Newman, has held a significant role for Anglicans since the 19th century and has enjoyed a historical usage. The use of something like Tract 90 to interpret the 39 articles is legitimate and has certainly become part of our tradition within Anglicanism. So that's a little bit of an introduction to the Articles of Religion as Anglo-Catholics see them. There is a very funny phrase that I will use from one of the great professors at Oxford University in the early 20th century. Canon M.P. Williams said of the 39 Articles, quote, I assent to the 39 Articles as I assent to the Oxford Gas Works. I am aware of their existence. I am at the present moment engaged in no active plan for their destruction, but it does not mean that I approve of them. And that may very well summarize what we mean when we talk about the 39 articles. <laughs> Thank you. I I had a couple quick follow-up questions for you about this because that was, that was very well done and, and put together. Um, when we talk about the 39 articles, obviously you mentioned interpreting them correctly through the lens of the seven ecumenical councils. Something like Track 90 would be an example of that. Um, I'm curious how you see the the articles in their original context. Um, you know, Anglicanism's often been called a via media, and people mean that to mean we're sort of in between Rome and and Protestantism. Um, but what many people have come, especially, I feel like this is more prominent probably in the past five to seven years. Um, what many people have come to say is that we are a via media, but the the articles are are in between sort of uh, Wittenberg and Geneva. And I remember actually being at a conference where you spoke, and this was the contention of a number of the speakers there. Um, so I'm just curious how you would sort of respond to that claim that that to really understand the articles, we have to position them in a sort of classical Protestant um, way, and that anything else is a kind of sophistry. Ah, well, that's a brilliant question, as always, Father. Always asking fantastic questions. 
I would say that that approach to the 39 articles is in fact anachronistic. And what we've witnessed over the last decade in particular within a more evangelical strain of Anglicanism is an effort to use the articles of religion to format them and apply them in a way for which they were not originally intended. This goes to the point of the question of a confessional statement. The articles of religion are not articles of faith. If they were articles of faith, they would be entitled that way. They are not. They're articles of religion, religio, which means to remember, to put together different bodies, individuals, groups, points of view, to remember, to rejoin. That was the purpose historically in the 16th century of the articles of religion. They are somewhat imprecise, we can say, deliberately imprecise because they are articles of peace intended to bind these different varying, sometimes quite dramatically different theological perspectives in one institution. This is the whole concept of the Elizabethan settlement, which of course has now collapsed. Uh, the collapse of the Elizabethan settlement is the reality in which we live, and that is why we have these uh, quite radically different forms of Anglicanism in the 21st century, our position lying with the great Catholic movement that has been in Anglicanism since the English reform of the 16th century and before. But the attempt to craft or reinterpret the articles of religion as taking its place alongside the Augsburg Confession or the Westminster Confession is quite anachronistic because those ecclesial bodies use their confessions as effectively a paper pope, a means by which the scripture is authoritatively, in a determined fashion, interpreted and applied within that community. That has not been the case with the 39 Articles of Religion. The 39 Articles are frank, frankly too ambiguous to be used in, in that kind of way, to bear that kind of weight. I think the difficulty theologically today is that there are Anglicans who put too much weight on the articles and they were not designed to carry it. Rather, their whole purpose is to draw a sort of boundary, a generous, rather large, expansive boundary within which theology can be done. So we should look not to the articles as a narrow theological or doctrinal statement, but rather as a, a very historically broad tent in which a great deal of theological consideration and exploration could take place. There is always the need to have a sense of authority in the church and the crisis of authority that emerged in the Anglican communion beginning in the 1960s and 70s created a, a, an authority vacuum. Some people are seeking to fill that vacuum with a sort of retreaded or retooled 39 articles, which take the role of a magisterium. But that is not their historical purpose and the effort to use them in such a way and to, and to make them morally equivalent to confessions of Protestant communions historically is anachronistic and inaccurate. That is helpful. It's always good to remember they are primarily political documents. Yes, they are. So, Bishop Chad, that, that sort of leads us to a question we had from one of our listeners, uh, Father Mack. He asked, the fact of the formulary's relationship to a 16th century schism seems to relativize them in a way 
that is not true of, say, the creeds or the canons of the ecumenical councils. If that is so, are they the right source for Anglican identity and unity today? A fantastic question, and we appreciate it very much. Our way of looking at this is perhaps a little bit differently from what others might consider or contemplate, because we see the integral ecclesiality of the English church as part of the story. The production of the formularies in the Church of England in the 16th century are on the level of local councils. The Church of England at the time and the Anglican Church, of which we are the heirs today, is part of the one Catholic and Apostolic Church. It is part of the Unam Sanctam. It is part of the one holy Catholic and Apostolic body of Jesus Christ and possesses the authority to govern itself through local synods and councils. The production of the formularies in the 16th century is part of that narrative. So we would say that the church had the authority and the right to govern itself and to produce these formularies. So they differ very little then in comparison to other local synods and formularies that have been developed in particular local churches, sort of a sui generis churches around the Western Catholic world over the last 2,000 years. Uh, we are not a Protestant schism. We are a branch of the Catholic Church. And as such, we have the right to govern ourselves by these kind of methods. But the point is taken, which is that the Anglican formularies, as they are often called, would in this hierarchy to which I already re referred, would be at the the sort of the minimal level. They would have the least authority. They do not have the authority to take us away from the consensus fidelium or the consensus patricum, which the whole Catholic Church has received, the tradition of the apostles, the holy tradition, the orthodox faith, which is fully revealed to us in Holy Scripture and in the ecumenical councils. And therefore, the local formularies of the English church must be interpreted according to the whole mind of Christ in his whole church universally. And this means that any error that is contained within these formularies must be corrected. And I'll go ahead and say that for us, beginning in 1977, the continuing churches now possess something that Anglicans heretofore had not, which is a doctrinal statement that enables us to make corrections regarding those local formularies of the English church, the affirmation of St. Louis. The affirmation of St. Louis is not a creed, nor has it claimed to be any kind of council of the church, but it is an intensely helpful guide that looks to the seven ecumenical councils and the received consentient tradition of the undivided church as the way by which Anglicans must resolve doctrinal and moral questions. It possesses a clarity, a directness, uh, a sort of succinctness that the 16th century formularies lack, and they serve to clarify the ambiguity of documents like the 39 Articles of Religion. So this is how we would look at, for example, the 39 Articles or the Book of Homilies. If they contain error, and in some places they do, they have to be corrected by a higher authority, a more magisterial authority, 
which we possess. All Anglicans throughout all history have had recourse to the higher authority, but it has been in many ages and many times neglected. And through the crises that we experienced in the 20th century, we've been able to utilize this as an opportunity to bring us back into the mainstream of ancient Christian orthodoxy, the central tradition of the church, which comes to us from the fathers and the saints, the liturgies, and supremely, the ecumenical consensus of the first millennium. This now is the basis by which local formularies have been interpreted. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this question, because I think, you know, we, um, people, a, a good number of people appeal to the 39 articles, the Book of Homilies, other Anglican formularies as a way to safeguard against apostasy in a number of contemporary debates. Um, it's interesting because we're recording this the day after the Church of England Synod decided to bless same-sex unions. Obviously, in America, we've been dealing with that issue and with women's ordination and everything for quite some time. Um, so I'm curious, how would you respond to someone who says that that these are sort of the safeguards against apostasy on those on those issues? Are we in the continuum open to more danger in terms of marriage or ordination because we don't view the, these documents as confessional? Not at all. We're, we're not in any danger whatsoever of falling into heresy or apostasy by simply putting the local particular Anglican formularies in their rightful place and beginning to examine them and to apply and interpret them according to the mind of Christ in the church universal. In fact, quite the opposite. The advantage of the continuing church is that we have recourse more explicitly to the general mind of the church as that has been given to us in the apostolic tradition. It was St. Basil the Great who said that the tradition perfects, fulfills, and completes the revelation found in Scripture. It was St. Basil the Great who said that Holy Scripture and Holy Tradition are two modes of one divine revelation. The difficulty is that Anglicans with a sort of Reformation mind who have not recovered the patristic mind of the church have tended to look at these issues in a very narrow fashion and have not been willing to engage the consensus that already exists against doctrinal and moral error, as is found in the sweeping scope of patristic teaching and the consensus and the received patrimony of the ancient church. We are in no danger of falling into heresy or apostasy by having recourse to the teaching of St. Ambrose or St. Augustine or St. John Chrysostom or St. Basil the Great, or St. John of Damascus, or St. Maximus the Confessor. Uh, it is the consensus of the fathers, in fact, that gives to us how the church authoritatively reads the scripture. And it should be pointed out in this way that church, tradition, and scripture are inseparable. In the Catholic way of understanding divine revelation, the church is the spirit-filled, spirit-illuminated body of Christ who possesses all truth, because we have the Holy Ghost to lead and guide us into all truth, and the tradition is the living memory of the church and the voice of the Holy Ghost in the church, given down to us to this point, this idea of parodesis, of handing on the faith, the faith once delivered to the saints. This is all encompassed in one supernatural reality. And so church, tradition, and scripture belong together. They form that beautiful tapestry of divine revelation, 
which is embodied literally in the church as the mystical body of Christ. What we're talking about is dogmatic revelation and dogmatic theology given by God. And we affirm all of that on the basis of how Orthodox Christians have always received the scriptures. The Bible is the infallible word of God. Uh, I'm not afraid to use the word inerrant, but it is received in the church. The Bible is used to teach the, the revelation of God. The Bible proves the revelation of God and is the church's teaching office then to apply this. It's often been said, the church to teach the Bible to prove. That's an Anglican way of putting it. Or the mantra of Anglicans throughout the centuries, Bible and primitive church. So by not using the local particular formularies of the 16th century in a confessional way, we're not suffering any detriment. Rather, we're simply ordering this hierarchy in its proper sequence and order. The scriptures are given to us from the hands of the fathers who are the successors of the apostles. And this is why we believe in apostolic succession. Apostolic succession transmits not only the saving grace of Christ in the sacramental order, the apostolic succession transmits saving doctrine in the order of tradition and revelation. These phenomena are inseparable. And it should be pointed out, there are people who agree with the 39 articles who are on the opposite side of those hot button issues too. Mm. Yeah. Because the, because, you know, I mean, anybody can pick up scripture and I think take it seriously, but come to very different conclusions on those kind of, those kind of issues, you know? And um, so I don't, I just don't see how it's, how they can possibly be the kind of safeguard people want them to be. It's putting too much, too much weight on them. I, I think so. And for example, let's take the example of the first two concerns that you mentioned, which have really torn the Anglican communion of Canterbury asunder. Women's ordination and the blessing of same-sex unions, both of these are very contemporary issues. Neither of these were given any kind of credence or possible contemplation for many centuries, millennia, before our own time. And when we look at the scriptures, which I think in both of these areas are self-evident in terms of their teaching, all we have to do is rely upon the scripture as then interpreted by the consensus of the church and the fathers in the first millennium to see why specifically and dogmatically neither of these errors are permissible. So we don't have to rely on local formularies or uh, reformational formularies to come to any kind of determination about why these practices are contrary to both Holy Scripture and Holy Tradition, and they clearly are. The continuing church is very clear on these matters. Both of these, of course, point to anthropology as well. They point to the Christian anthropology that's contained in Scripture and has been uh, faithfully applied in every generation. Uh, the errors of women's ordination and blessing same-sex unions are are Christological and anthropological in scope. And the church has been able to address these issues consistently throughout the last 2000 years, because we affirm the divine revelation of scripture, which is handed down through this beautiful gift of tradition. 
so where where would the 16th century formularies fall in this area? Do they specifically address these questions? No, they don't, actually. If you look at them closely, they don't. So, But they do address disputed points, controverted points in the Reformation period, more about questions of soteriology and the like. So it's it's a fascinating position that some Anglicans take because at the end of the day, if we want to be able to stand up for Jesus, if we want to maintain the divine revelation in its, in its integrity, then we have to have recourse to a higher authority, and that would be scripture and tradition. So, Bishop, um, how would you respond to people who say that you're, we're not really Anglican because we don't view the 39 articles as sort of an ultimate authority or the defining feature of Anglicanism? Wow, Father, that's phenomenal. <laughs> what a great question. Well, what is an Anglican? I mean, that in itself is a challenging question. There are people who assert that if you're not in communion with Canterbury, that you are not an Anglican in any meaningful or substantial way. I love the phrase of Father Carol Simcox, who spoke at the uh, wonderful Congress of St. Louis, which was called by the Fellowship of Concerned Churchmen in 1977, and he rose to the podium and said, I'd much rather be in communion with Christ than be in communion with Canterbury, uh, which I think is sort of the definitive answer from our point of view. What about the Anglicans during the Interregnum who had no Archbishop of Canterbury because he had been beheaded? Were they Anglicans, even though there was no Archbishop of Canterbury? The See of Canterbury was vacant. What do we say about non-jurors? Were they Anglicans? Although they had separated from the established Church of England, uh, they certainly maintained what we know as the ethos and the liturgical customary of Anglicanism. And they had Anglican orders and Anglican polity. And certainly we would not want to uh, de-Anglicanize or un-Anglicanize the non-jurors. So that is a, a wonderful question. It goes to the very heart of who we are. An Anglican is one who belongs to the supernatural society which takes its particular unique flavor and shape in the English church tradition. And with that is a whole array of characteristics that define an Anglican. Premier amongst them, I would say, the Book of Common Prayer, which is an essential component of what it means to be an Anglican, along with Anglican orders, Anglican sacraments, Anglican canon law, Anglican polity, and that wonderful and somewhat elusive phenomenon or uh, reality of, of Anglican culture, pastoralia, pastoral care, ministry, uh, the way that we order our common life in Christ, the way that we gather in church, the way that we offer the mass and the sacraments. Some of these things are hard to put into words. They're, they're somewhat numinous in the way that we go about living our lives as Anglican Catholic Christians. But the litmus tests that people will erect for regarding what is or is not an Anglican very often can't be justified historically. The 39 Articles would be an example of that. The 39 Articles were never imposed in America. American Anglicans never subscribed to them. So they could hardly be expected to be a litmus test of Orthodox Anglicanism. Otherwise, we will have unchurched the entire American church since 1789. We have to go deeper than that to find our identity, our 
recognition as Anglican. And we can begin to explore those in more detail, but the 39 articles would not play that kind of role, nor did it play that kind of role for many Anglican churches throughout the world, particularly with the expansion of the Anglican communion beginning in the 18th century, all the way to our own day, where the 39 articles would play less and less of a role in many churches around the world, many provinces of the Anglican communion. So we, we have to look to something I think deeper when we're searching for what it means to be an Anglican. Ultimately, an Anglican is someone who comes originally from the Church of England and the Anglican communion. That is our historical origin. And we stand as continuing Anglicans in that stream. We are the heirs of the Anglican tradition. We are the heirs of the Canterbury communion. We're the heirs of the Oxford move, movement and the, the Catholic revival within the Anglican community. I think those are more helpful ways of, of showing what an Anglican is. Wonderful question. I think it's interesting too that with the 39 articles as that litmus test, we're, we see a really, in, in my opinion, I think a very strange sort of fixing in a particular context, at a particular time, with a particular sort of bias, what Anglican identity is. If we use the f the formularies, right, the thirty nine articles or the book of, or the book of homilies, for instance, to test what an Anglican is, it's to me a very strange sort of thing because there's so many, as you mentioned, the hierarchy. There's so many higher things that I would want to higher and deeper things um, to, to use to describe or to define what an Anglican is. There are more important fish to fry. There's more important uh, sort of uh, matrices to, to understand than the 39 articles, which are so deeply 16th century in their context. Um, so I, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a strange one to me to try to say, well, if you don't like the 39 articles or you don't adhere to them, then you know, you're not an Anglican. That, that's, a, that's a weird move, in my opinion. Absolutely. In fact, to use that term once more, that seems terribly anachronistic. It's taking a 16th century standard of very limited authority, of very limited control over the church, and turning it into something which is far more vital and important than it actually possessed at the time in which it was written, and the purposes for which it was constructed, and the ways in which it was actually um, attached to the church, employed in the church in the following centuries. And so it doesn't really seem to fit. It doesn't fit today, given the reality of our situation, nor does it really fit when one uh, retrospectively examines the role of the 39 articles over the course of history. It's, it's a very myopic view of the 39 articles and not at all what the Church of England herself initially used the articles for. And so again, it goes back to this vacuum that there is an absence of authority, a perceived absence of some mechanism by which the church can exercise discipline and order. And so to fill that vacuum, the 39 articles have been engaged in this way. But that, again, is not the reason for which they were written, nor is that the role that they historically played. 
it seems very weird to freeze theology in the 16th century. I mean, just think about the Pauline debates, you know, about justification. And I mean, I can appreciate where the 39 articles come down on that question a, a little more than like the, the Westminster Confession or whatever. But at the same time, I mean, we've got this whole breadth of scholarship that's come out about Paul, and we know a lot more about Paul than we did 500 years ago. And so to say we're stuck with, you know, this kind of Cranmerian sort of blending of a few different Reformation positions when we now have, you know, N.T. Wright and Michael Gorman and E.P. Sanders and I mean, all those kind of guys, you know, I mean, it, it really, to me, it just doesn't seem like a very productive way of doing theology. Um, I can appreciate being rooted in the history of the church, but limiting it to one particular uh, time period just seems seems problematic. Now, this does raise a question, however, um, from Father Mack, um, who asked a number of great questions as we were preparing for this episode. Father Mack is a member of the Discord, which you can join if you're a member of our Communion of Patreon Saints. So if you want to ask questions that we consider using in interviews with guests like Bishop Chad, then we would appreciate it if you joined the Communion of Patreon Saints. Um, but he asks whether uh, whether Anglo-Catholic engagement with the articles always has to be negative or critical. And I'm inclined to say no. I mean, Maskell engages them positively, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Bishop Chad, about that, especially as as modern Anglo-Catholics um, in the 21st Thank century. Well, that's another terrific question. I, I see the Articles of Religion as extremely positive. I've taught classes on the 39 Articles of Religion. I've used the 39 Articles of Religion even in preaching. I'll have to make the joke if you're bored during the sermon. Uh, you may look at the 39 articles. They're in the back of the prayer book. Hopefully you won't be that bored while I'm preaching the sermon on Sunday morning. But I think we can take a very positive appraisal of the 39 articles. Nothing that we have said today is meant in any way to denigrate or in any way to lessen the uh, historical and theological significance. We're simply putting the 39 articles in their proper historical perspective. And I think they can be employed, they can be used in a very beneficial and edifying way. So Anglo-Catholics have been certainly willing to uh, embrace the 39 articles so long as they're properly interpreted. For example, there is a quite superb book, An Introduction to the 39 Articles of Religion of the Church of England by E.J. Bicknell, who was in fact really an Anglo-Catholic Tractarian scholar and the book is a marvelous exposition of the teaching and doctrine of what is contained in the 39 articles, but also placing that within the wider context of the church's great tradition, not only in the Anglican tradition, but in the consensus of the fathers and showing how the 39 articles of religion actually clarify disputed points and can situate us in that consensus of the early church. So I think there can be an extremely positive use and appraisal of the 39 Articles of Religion. And my cheeky comment from M.P. Williams is only a joke. It's not meant to be taken too seriously. Anglo-Catholics certainly can and, and should use them because they can be of great benefit. But again, the difficulty is they can be misinterpreted. And this is what we often find today, that there is... Uh, an interpretation of the 39 articles that would be more Calvinist or perhaps more uh, late Lutheran than they are in terms of the patristic mind of the church 
the thronoma of the church, the mindset of the church, received from Christ, the apostles, and the early church fathers. And so I think we have to be careful with that. If we use the 39 articles, we also need to pick up uh, our jurgens and we need to look at the church fathers and see what they have to say, or look at that brilliant compilation of the ante and post-Nicene fathers and consult that when reading and read that along with the 39 articles to ensure that the way that we're reading it is correct. There's a wrong way to read the 39 articles and there's a right way to read them. And the right way is to place them in their proper context. Very good. Very good. Father Creighton, do you have any uh, sort of thoughts? We can kind of start to close our discussion about it a little bit, but um, yeah. What do you, what do you think of Father Creighton? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's easy. It's, it's, um, I think on the one hand, you can you can you can kind of go Newman's route and say um, we can interpret these like he says, you know, like he does in Tract Ninety in in a, in a Catholic way. And I think um, examples from history abound um, for Anglicans and Anglo-Catholics who have done it um, that way. And uh, I I don't think that sets you outside of the consensus of the Church. I don't think it doesn't make you an Anglican or any of those sorts of things. I think it's it's um, the best way, and, and we might have listeners that disagree with this point, um, and that's okay, but uh, I think, you know, for personally, I think that's the best way of, of interacting and sort of relating to these articles is um, to, to A, understand their context, and to B, um, apply that sort of hierarchy of interpretation to them. Um, I, I, I have said this before, I think, uh, maybe on the podcast, but um, in other places that, you know, I sort of think in terms of the Western Latin Catholic tradition. And so if something in Anglicanism deviates from that received tradition, um, then I'm going to side with the greater tradition. Um, I, I, I think that's sort of the baseline for how uh, how I personally uh, go about the project of of theology, um, but I think with the thirty nine articles we can we can clearly sort of apply a, a consistent Catholic interpretation to them uh, and be well within our bounds as as Anglicans to do that. Um, there's there's no defined way you have to interpret the articles. There's no articles that say you have to interpret the articles in a Calvinist way. Um, as Bishop Chad, as you said, you know, they're, they're broad. And so, um, I think we, um, thankfully have the latitude to be able to do that. And something like the affirmation of St. Louis, I think really does clearly put us, um, into a position that, that allows for the, the greater tradition of the church to speak to the articles instead of the articles trying to speak to the tradition of the church and tell it what to do, um, which I have a problem with. The fathers inform the articles. The articles don't inform the fathers. The fathers interpret the articles. The articles do not interpret the fathers. The fathers right. come first. That is the apostolic tradition. And one of the gifts that we have with the affirmation of St. Louis is that it has the ability to address and correct the ambiguities that are found in articles that were intentionally ambiguous in many places. Oh, this is true of the Missal in our liturgical life. There are ambiguities which exist in the Book of Common Prayer, 
and the missile can serve to fill in the blank, to address those ambiguities, and where necessary to move us in a clearer theological direction. That is really what the affirmation of St. Louis does in regard to the local particular formularies of the 16th century, exactly. But our goal, our theological task, the theological enterprise that we engage as Anglo-Catholics is to live in the, the heart of the church's faith, in the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it has been handed down to us in the communion of the Catholic church. And the, the 16th century articles have a role to play in understanding our history, they help us to understand where we come from. Uh, they place us in the narrative of the English church's life, and they have historical significance. But in terms of dogma, in terms of saving faith, of divine revelation, they have to be submitted to the higher and greater authorities of the church. And once framed in that way, can be useful to us and can be employed in such a way as to help us to grow in our faith, but we have to order it aright. There must be a structure, there must be an order to the way by which we interpret what is given to us. We are the servants of the church's faith, not the masters of the church's faith. We are simply the stewards of the Lord. It has been given to us, we have inherited this, it's an inheritance. The 39 articles have a role to play in that, but on the grand scheme, in the grand scheme of things, they are lower level, clearly. Uh, in fact, we would say they're at the bottom tier in terms of this hierarchy of what Christ has given to his church in the way that we are to receive, to believe, to profess, and to live out his revelation to us. It strikes me as important to say, too, that a confession or a creed or any sort of formulary or authority is only good insofar as it's right. I mean, why is the Nicene Creed so important? Because it's correct. It's the right handling of the scriptures and the tradition and applying, you know, the great tradition to the questions that came up at the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, etc. Um, and so, you know, it, it's one thing to have a confession or, or some sort of document like that. I mean, if you're Presbyterian and you have the Westminster Confession of Faith, great. You know, I assume you are Presbyterian because you think that's correct. And so when you're with other Presbyterians, you can invoke the Westminster Confession and say, this is it. You know, I mean, this is this is where our church has said what's true, what's not true. Um, of course, like you said, the articles are not a confession. But I think even if they were... There's there's a kind of checking your brain at the door. Well, the article says, so therefore it must be true. And that just is, to me, not not a very appealing way of approaching questions. I mean, think uh, the, the Seventh Council is a great example of that, right? I mean, the, I think the articles do, at least in, in the way that the, the people who wrote them, do kind of disagree with the Seventh Council. And so the question is, well, what do you do with that? And obviously the affirmation of St. Louis gives us a framework that we can deal with that tension. But yeah. you have a lot of people who end up basically dismissing at least the seventh council, sometimes the whole final three councils, uh, just because they want to be faithful to the to the articles and kind of prize that over the consensus of the church. And um, yeah, that to me, that just is not a very compelling way of 
way of doing things. Article 22 is a perfect example of the ambiguity of the 39 articles and also is a wonderful opportunity for the affirmation of St. Louis, which opens the door to the patristic consensus to correct something or correct the interpretation. It condemns the doctrina romanciensum, the Roman doctrine of images. That's an extremely ambiguous phrase. It does not condemn the biblical, patristic, or orthodox doctrine of images. Uh, it doesn't go any farther than that. What was the Romish doctrine of the time? Popular medieval practice, which some would say was popular medieval superstition at the time. It was the generally received sort of, um, if you would, uh, peasant view of theology in the 16th century. It wasn't the official teaching of the Roman communion per se at all, but it was the popular medieval view and that this is what is actually condemned because if you do condemn the uh, patristic or orthodox doctrine of images based on article 22, then you'd also have to condemn the biblical or patristic doctrine of pardons, of worship, of adoration. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to reject the orthodox doctrine of worship or adoration. So there has to be a right doctrine of images as there is perceived to be a wrong one. Same thing with purgatory. It condemns the Romish doctrine of purgatory, but you, you can't condemn a, a biblical one or a, an ancient one or a consentient one. So the articles of religion have to be interpreted. Uh, standing alone as they are, yes, the framers of those articles may have had in, in mind one thing, but that's not grammatically or literally what it's saying. It is interesting that King Charles I, the blessed martyr who died for the Catholic faith because he would not give up the rule of apostolic succession and bishops in the Church of England, he affixed to the Articles of Religion His Majesty's Declaration. And the Declaration says that there has to be a literal and grammatical understanding of the Articles, and that was an anti-Puritan move. That was to get the Articles away from a Calvinist interpretation, which is what the Puritans of the time were trying to do, to impose a Calvinist interpretation on the 39 Articles. King Charles and Archbishop William Laud of Canterbury were Catholic-minded men. We may not call them Anglo-Catholics in the modern sense, but they were men of patristic sensibility who appreciated the ancient tradition of the early church. And they wanted to recover a sense of the fathers in the life of the Church of England. So the, his, his Majesty's Declaration was imposed on the 39 Articles to move away from a Calvinist interpretation. That in itself tells us that standing alone, the 39 Articles are, are not to be a dogmatic statement. And that's why they have to be interpreted. But to be clear, since we're having this conversation, Anglican Catholics of the continuing churches absolutely affirm the dogma of the Seventh Ecumenical Council of Nicaea to the Second Nicene Council of 787 AD Christian images are necessary in Christian worship to affirm the doctrine of the incarnation. They are not optional. Images, you can see an icon of our Lord behind me, images are essential to Christian worship because they teach the incarnation. If we deny the image, we deny the reality that the word was made flesh.
So we do affirm the dogmatic truth of the holy images, the icons established by the Seventh Council. Excellent. Excellent. Well, great. Well, does anybody have anything to, to kind of add to this conversation? I think we've covered quite a bit of ground. Bishop, you're fantastic as always. Thank um, you. <laughs> well, if, if nobody has anything to add, then perhaps we can go to, uh, to everybody's favorite segment, which is what we're into. So Bishop, what are you, uh, what are you into these days? Well, aside from traveling, I really enjoy spending as much time as I possibly can with my wife, Megan, and our four children and trying to have fun together when we have the opportunity and enjoying watching some movies occasionally, new things that might come out on Amazon Prime and the like. And I like delving into reading. Uh, most recently, I've been rereading some of the history of the old Catholic Church because we have an ongoing dialogue with the Polish National Catholic Church, the PNCC. So I dug out of my library some books on that and rereading the history of old Catholicism. So I very much enjoyed doing that. There's a very good book, by the way, written by an SSC priest in England back in 1997 called The Old Catholic Phenomenon. And sadly, I think it's Father Coles. I sadly think I've forgotten his name. I believe his name is Father Coles. C-O-L-E-S, and it's a very good book on the history of old Catholicism. So when I'm not traveling or spending time with my family, uh, I'm, of course, laboring in the diocese, in the Lord's Vineyard, in our diocese, and occasionally we'll try to read a book. So that's basically all I've been up to lately. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Father Creighton, what are you into? Oh, um, I think the thing that I'm into is uh, I've mentioned before on the podcast, but uh, my wife and I really love all creatures, great and small. Um, and I grew up watching the old all creatures, great and small from like 1978 to 1990. Um, but the new, the new, uh, the new show that you can, you can watch on Amazon and wherever you stream things um, is really excellent. And there's a new season out. So, uh, Margaret Ann and I have been anticipating every new episode and, and enjoying it. It's just wholesome and fun. So I think I think that's that's what we've been into. Uh, I'm still reading uh, the book I mentioned last time, uh, Brisbane, and so I'm still enjoying it. So I'll give you another update when I finish it. Nice. What about Very you? Good. Well, so my wife and I, for a long time uh, in the evenings, would just watch TV shows or movies or whatever. You know, we'd kind of binge stuff or whatever. And um, that's certainly fun to do. And and we we do still watch shows sometimes, but we've tried to kind of get away from that a little bit and hang out a little more. And the way that we've been doing that has been by playing board various board games. Um, and so we've been looking for a really good like two player games since our boys really i mean our oldest is turning five in march so he can't quite play a lot with us so um so we found some really cool uh games um we've been playing at one called next stop london which is about uh designing uh like a metro line basically um we've been playing farkle which is a dice game um we've been playing a game called yahtzee frenzy uh we have one called critters at war uh, just a whole host of these kind of fun two-player board games, and we really, really have a joy. We just got one called Doomlings, 
Um, and so we've been doing that every night and just playing playing games. It's it's a lot of fun. I have I have a list of a number of games that we have that we can play, and then I, I use a random number generator app every day, and we that's how we figure out which game we're going to play. Um, so it's been quite fun, quite fun, a good way to unwind. And it's you know it's not as mindless as watching TV. Uh, but it, it, it gets us kind of interacting with each other and, and all that. And so, um, and of course, uh, for the record, I win more than she does. <laughs> Not that I'm competitive or counting or anything like that. <laughs> well, Bishop, thank you so much for, for coming on today. I know, uh, every, all of our listeners really enjoy it when you're on and, and we always look forward to, to having you on and getting to talk with you. Thank you so much. It is a treat to be back. I always love being with you, both of you fathers. Thank you so much. And thank you for this ministry. I've always joked that the Sacramentalist podcast is the Anglo-Catholic EWTN. And what you do in service to the church and to Orthodox Anglicanism worldwide is absolutely terrific. It is a supernal honor for me to be present with you today. Thank you for your hospitality and having me on again. Absolutely. Well, uh, we'll we'll fill the listeners in that um, we actually, since we have you booked for this time, we're actually going to do two episodes with you, and the next will be a short episode, um, and we'll just leave it at that. Um, people will tune in, and they can figure out what uh, what's going on um, with our short episode. So, uh, to close, I figured I'll pray the collect for the church from the prayer book, page thirty-seven of the Book of Common Prayer. If that's okay with both of you, the Lord be with you, and with thy spirit. Let us pray. O gracious Father, we humbly beseech thee for thy holy Catholic Church, that thou wouldest be pleased to fill it with all truth and all peace. Where it is corrupt, purify it. Where it is in error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, establish it. Where it is in want, provide for it. Where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of him who died and rose again, and ever liveth to make intercession for us. Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Oh,